inequality, which was supposed to be a non-issue until, say, 2005, 6, 7, is uh, suddenly coming back as a popular item in research agenda for economists because now there's a growing concern that the gap between the super rich and the rest is uh, widening and this uh, increasing gap is even negatively influencing things like uh, democracy and civic rights and so on. So, you know, there's uh, now much greater concern about inequality. It's been eight months since the last episode, which is hilarious if you listen to the last thing that I say in that last episode. Um, but anyway, we're going to talk about chapter eight. Before we get into that, though, I just want to say I just have this on my mind and I'm just speaking this out into the world. Watchmen, the book, the comic series or graphic novel or whatever by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. You got to Everyone's got to read that book. The Oh, my God. I heard about the HBO show that was coming out. I always wanted to read the book. Like I was interested in it in high school, but my library didn't have it or something. Um, and then I just kind of forgot about it. But then I heard about the series coming out and I heard it was good. So I read the book anticipating that I'd watch the series. And like, and I just did that too. I just like 20 minutes ago, I finished the last episode of that season by HBO. And holy cow, everybody's got to get on that. It doesn't have anything to do, I mean, not that it doesn't have anything to do with economics. It has nothing to do with the content of this podcast, but it's so, so good. Like, I just want to make a podcast about that book and that show now. But uh, okay, anyway, chapter eight, here we go. The title of this chapter is Of the Wages of Labor. And I'm not actually going to go through this chapter in chronological order. I'm cutting it up a little bit by theme. Um, but one of the things he talks about is the limits of wage. So in any country, the upper limit on wage is the national wealth. Uh, like no one can earn more money for wage than there is money in the economy to sustain that rate of wage or whatever. And the minimum wage that can be offered by employers is basically the survival rate or like the rate of wage at which if you go lower, people cannot feed themselves. And he gives kind of three examples of nations that illustrate this point. So the first is the American colonies. At that time, the highest wages for common labor were found in the American colonies. And that was at a time when America was expanding its boundaries of civilization. It was adding a ton of people. It was building a lot of towns and villages or whatever. Um, Britain was relatively stagnant, and so wages were lower. And then he gives the example of China, which according to him was like basically a stagnant nation. Like they weren't expanding boundaries. They weren't building a lot of infrastructure and he says there that people are paid less than like starvation um, wages. And so basically what he says is people are either committing infanticide or they're moving out of the country. And that he just establishes that connection between the growth rate of a nation and uh, like the physical growth rate. Like how much is it expanding? How much is it building? Uh adding new citizens through birth or immigration or whatever, and what are its wages. 
and then he just talks about a few different things about wages. He says, uh, as you move from place to place, and he gave the example of like European countries, like if you went to Poland or France or Germany or whatever, the prices of things actually don't change very much because like, cause someone can buy corn from a, like a distant place. Um, and so like the rate for corn in a given year is kind of the same across all nations in Europe and the UK, according to him. Um, but he says wages vary widely from place to place, even though the prices of things don't. So there's some kind of disconnect there between the determinants of price products and the determinants of the wages of labor. Uh, he talks about how wages and provisions are inversely related. So he observed that like when wages go up, the cost of uh, like food, fuel, clothing goes down. So when people are getting paid more, the stuff they want to buy costs less and the opposite. As people are getting more meager incomes, prices of things rise. Yeah, and that he kind of talks about some of those dynamics and those are kind of more technical details. The thing I was most interested in in this chapter was Smith's moral concern about the situation that people who work for wages find themselves in. So a harsh reality kind of arises from this system of workers that are dependent on landlords and what Smith calls masters for their wage. And so here's a, here's a quote by, by Smith. What are the common wages of labor depends everywhere upon the contract usually made between those two parties whose interests are by no means the same. The workmen desire to get as much, the masters to give as little as possible. The former are disposed to combine in order to raise, the latter in order to lower the wages of labor. It is not, however, difficult to foresee which of the two parties must, upon all ordinary occasions, have the advantage in the dispute and force the other into a compliance with their terms. The masters, being fewer in number, can combine much more easily, and the law, besides, authorizes, or at least does not prohibit their combinations, while it prohibits those of the workmen. We have no acts of Parliament against combining to lower the price of work, but many against combining to raise it. In all such disputes, the masters can hold out much longer. A landlord, a farmer, a master manufacturer, or merchant, though they did not employ a single workman, could generally live a year or two upon the stocks which they have already acquired. Many workmen could not subsist a week, few could subsist a month, and scarce any a year without employment. In the long run, the workman may be as necessary to his master as his master is to him, but the necessity is not so immediate. This is so interesting to me that Smith is very concerned about the welfare of workers and the rights of workers, because I think the impression I had going into this book was that Adam Smith was like the invisible hand, free market kind of a guy that he was saying, you know, look, if you just let the market do what it wants to do, prices will match, you know, you will hover around this natural price of goods. It's the most efficient system. It increases the national wealth. It ends up being better off. It, it ends up being better for workers and 
capitalists and everyone if we just let the market do its thing. But here he's saying something that I always associated with Marx, which was you have this oppressive reality that's baked into capitalism where you have these class differences. Um, and Smith also gives some other examples in this as he's talking about wage and stuff. He gives some examples that show he was very concerned for the welfare of um, of like laborers. So he says things like well-paid workers are better workers. He said some people are perfectly content even in his day to work four days a week. And that was like most people would be happy if they could work four out of seven days of the week. He said workers paid directly for their output. So like if you paid a carpenter per piece of furniture or whatever, workers who were paid directly like that wear themselves out. He said in London, it was like common knowledge that carpenters who are paid in this way have eight hardworking years in them. And that after that, they're like, they burn out. And I you hear about burnout in a lot of fields. My wife is a nurse and they talk about nurse burnout all the time. Um, and it's something they, you know, either they tackle it or they don't. Like you have nursing departments where they have high burnout rates because, um, and I think the medical field is kind of like that in general, there's kind of a culture of overwork and that you kind of earn your stripes by, you know, doing 36 hour shifts and, and crap like that, that is way unhealthy. And Smith says that's a bad approach. He said, Masters, if they were wise, should moderate their employees instead of encouraging them to always go harder and harder, even from just a perfectly selfish point of view of like getting the most productivity out of your out of your employees. Um, so yeah, that's the big thing for me with this chapter is realizing Smith was very concerned with workers and this idea that we have kind of a market system where we just let the market do what it wants and all of this stuff about like workers unionizing or whatever, like regulating markets to protect workers, all of that, according to like modern neoliberal theory, that all hurts the markets and therefore hurts society and even the workers. Because, you know, if they're living in a country where the markets aren't operating at peak efficiency or whatever, that it's everyone's worse off for it. But Smith seems to be saying some different things here in this chapter. So I think that's a really interesting takeaway. Um, don't let people use Smith at you um, and make arguments against working people, against organizing, against unionizing, against uh, social policy and all that kind of stuff. Because if they do, they're wrong. And they probably... I mean, like, they haven't read The Wealth of Nations, obviously. And you haven't either. You're having me read it for you, so. But I'm telling you, Adam Smith cared about workers and even made the case it's good for the economy when the rights and well-being of workers is a priority. There you go. It is immoral for all of us, for the society, to make choice after choice that prioritizes the existence of billionaires over the existence of decency and dignity for all. Thank you.